0: Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson... Hi everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way
1: from Oxford. Thanks Mikey. Okay folks, so here's the show... It's about the unsung heroes, yeah. the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously
0: so changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually made it- it's also about the cock-ups. <laughs> yeah. The, those howlers, the moments of madness, and they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Okay folks, so first up this season, of course, was cheese. And to be frank, we could have carried on all year being quite cheesy, couldn't we, Paul? But there were a couple of key, significant episodes that we highlighted on the back of the old fromage. And, facts, quite frankly, you highlighted a couple and asked us to revisit. Well, that's it. So let's start with Thomas Jefferson and his mac and cheese story, mm-hmm. yeah? but
1: also his involvement with the Hemmings family. You see, Mikey, as you said in that app, and something we really can't stress enough here Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the USA, the founding father and principal author of the Declaration of of independence old tj the revolutionary freedom fighter who went on to found the university of virginia well i'm afraid jefferson was also mikey a very much a highfalutin plantation owner who built his fortune on the back of slavery and we're not just talking one or two slaves no it's not just one or two cuz jefferson's own records confirm he kept over 600 wow. men, women and children in slavery to do all the backbreaking work and all the other dirty work on his plantation and of course to build his grandiose mansion called monticello so really he should already be a howler in most people's book but there's another twist in the tale around the Hemmings slaves that for me marks him down as more than just a cowler in fact more of a creep okay so James Hemmings and the guy who brought mac and cheese to America well this James Hemmings he has a sister called Sally who you mentioned in Mm. that ep now the Hemmings Jefferson has inherited the Hemmings as new slaves for his plantation from his wife's family estate when his father-in-law dies Now, as a lawyer, Jefferson would later argue in court that, and here's a quote, everyone comes into the world with a right to his own person and using it at his own will. This is what is called personal liberty and is given him by the author of nature because it was necessary for his own sustenance. Pretty noble words. Yes, but when it came to a nice bit of inheritance for Thomas, it was, (laughs) sorry, I'm keeping you all, and I'm keeping you all as slaves, every last one of them, to the total of 135. So
0: he inherits 135 people.
1: That's right, Mikey, but unfortunately, I'm afraid it actually gets worse. You see, Jefferson's wife is a woman called Martha. Mm -hmm. We know she's his third cousin which, you know, (laughs) we could complain about. But more importantly, it's her father, John Wales, who dies to leave these slaves as inheritance to Thomas. But what the records forget to mention is that amongst these slaves, including some of the Hemings family, amongst the younger ones are other daughters and sons of this John Wales, because essentially he's raped their mothers one after another while they were in his possession. And I say rape here, Mikey, because there is no way that we should be dressing this up. So, amongst Jefferson's collection of slaves, you now incredibly have various half-sisters and half-brothers of Martha, Jefferson's wife. And one of these, a light-skinned young girl whose rape mother had herself been of mixed race, one of these half-sister girls is said to have been a spitting image of young Martha. And this is the young woman called Sally Hemmings, who we mentioned earlier. So she's the half-sister to her own owner. Owner. And full sister to James Hemming, Jefferson's slave chef. Now, the Jeffersons, they go on to have six children of their own, nothing untoward, or part of their own Jefferson family. But then in 1782, Martha dies of childbirth complications, aged a very young 34. And she makes Jefferson promise on her deathbed that he won't marry again. Or does he? Does he ever marry again? No, because it seems he's already got other ideas, ideas which I'm afraid to say are pretty damn sick. You see, he's taken a shine to young Sally Hemmings, and is said to have treated her above and beyond, but more than a few onlookers draw the obvious conclusion that it all boils down to the fact that that this Sally, she's Martha's lookalike. Hang on, a dead ringer for his dead wife, as his slave. I mean, that's that's beyond sick. Right, so as you said in that ep, Jefferson goes to Paris with his posting as minister to France. And not only has he taken James to be his chef, but soon after he also brings out Sally, who by this stage is aged just 16. Now, ostensibly, it's to look after and keep company of his youngest remaining daughter, the nine-year-old Polly. But...
0: Yeah, but...
1: Right, now... As we explained in that episode, slavery inside France, though not in its colonies, slavery inside France is illegal. So while Sally and James are there, not only are they free, Jefferson has to pay them to maintain the charade that they're
0: his servants. So technically, the Hemings could have stayed in France and remained free?
1: (laughs) Well, technically, you can do a lot of things, Mikey. But the, the truth is, Sally was a young girl entirely dependent on the future president. And when I say entirely dependent, within a few months, she's pregnant. Now, there have been plenty of whitewashing historians prepared to argue that Jefferson was not responsible, but, you know, we've all seen 12 years a slave and I'm afraid Sally Hemings was his slave and just 16. Now, from this point on, things do get murky. Some accounts say that Jefferson promised Sally and her child their freedom if she returned with him to Virginia and to Monticello, to the mansion. Some believe that Jefferson went on to have five more children with Sally, with or without her consent. But either way, Jefferson never once went on record to admit them as his own. But truth will out, Mikey, and as a sorry end to this absolute howler of a tale, the Jefferson family's Thomas Jefferson Foundation of Monticello, it announced in 2000 that in all probability and on the basis of numerous DNA tests on various surviving members of both families, they concluded that these children had been Thomas's. And in 2018, the same foundation finally acknowledged the girl who gave birth to these children was Sally Hemmings, the slave half-sister of Thomas Jefferson's dead wife. Alright, folks, the second up was the Moguls and my Man Babor, and in that we touched briefly on the various religions that were being practiced at the time in India. Now, I'd love to go into some depth here, especially on some of the lesser known religions like, you know, Jainism and those kind of things. But realistically, Mikey, we're going to need a, a whole new ep if we're going to do that. Mate, what you've told me about Jainism, it could take a whole new season. I'm, but we will get to it. I'm pretty keen. All right. So we're going to settle instead for answering some of the other, many other questions and tweets we received after the show. Now, a lot... As you might imagine, they asked about the Taj Mahal, but there was also quite a number on
0: that other icon of the period, the Peacock Throne. Yeah, Paulie, look, I've read plenty of mentions of that throne over the years, but I, along with quite a few of our listeners by the sound of it, would be pretty grateful if you could give us the full story. Okay, so the Peacock
1: Throne. This was the famous jeweled throne that was the seat of the emperors of the Mughal Empire in India throughout this period. Now, by the way, Mike, it doesn't matter, (laughs) Mughal, Moogle, Murgle, it doesn't really matter how you pronounce it or how you spell it. The only important bit is that you realise the name was derived from that other great name, the Mongols, because, of course, Babur, my hero, the founder of the Mughals, he always made sure due homage was paid to what he claimed was his long line of descent back as far as Timur the Great in Central Asia, And Genghis Khan himself and all those Mongol hordes out on the steppe. Yep, I've got that, mate. But what about this peacock throne? Okay, so the throne. This actually comes after Maiman Babur, almost by a century. And it was commissioned in the early 17th century by the later emperor Shah Jahan, the same guy who built the Taj Mahal. Now, he commissioned the throne to be placed in his royal audience chambers in the Red Fort of Delhi, his new capital, where he would entertain all the major statesmen from across India and all the foreign ambassadors, that kind of thing. So what did they use before it, right? <laughs> well, the old throne, yeah, it was also quite impressive. It was certainly massive, but in comparison, it was just actually a bit boring because it was just one colour all carved out of pieces of the same grey-black basalt rock. Whereas this new throne, it's a real wowser, and it's called the Peacock Throne because
0: of the two peacocks dancing on its back. Yeah, but we can't really be sure of it, kill me Paulie? Because the big, big deal about the Peacock Throne is that it's been lost to the ages and it
1: no longer exists. Right, and we'll come to exactly what happened to the throne in a minute. But yes, we'll never know exactly what the throne looked like. So instead, I've got the next best thing. It's a contemporary description from one of the Mughal historians, Abdul Hamid Lahori. And he gives us this description in the 1650s in his great work, the Padshanama. Now, the whole thing about the throne, it was supposed to be inspired and based on the designs of the great throne of Solomon from the Bible. Not that anyone knew what that looked like, actually, either. But here goes. This is what Abdul Lahori had to say. In the course of years, many valuable gems had come into the imperial jewel house, each one of which might serve as an eardrop for Venus or would adorn the girdle of the sun. Upon the accession of the emperor, in the opinion of far-seeing men, the acquisition of such rare jewels and the keeping of such wonderful brilliance can only render one service, that of adorning the throne of empire. They ought, therefore, to be put to such a use, that beholders might share in and benefit by their splendour, and that majesty might shine with increased brilliancy. That sounds nice. Right, so you've got rubies, garnets, diamonds, pearls, emeralds, pure gold equal to 250,000 miscals of weight. I'm not quite sure what a miscal is. but
0: I was going to ask, but keep going, keep going, mate. And then above the
1: throne was a canopy. The outside of the canopy was to be of enamel work, again, studded with gems, and it was all supposed to be supported by 12 emerald columns. And on the top of each pillar, there were to be two peacocks thick set with gems, and between each two peacocks, a tree set with rubies and diamonds, emeralds and pearls. Apparently, it took over seven years to make, Mikey, and cost more to make than the whole construction, even of the Taj Mahal. In fact, it was so magnificent, the master goldsmith responsible, a guy called Saeed Gilani he's summoned by the emperor and showered with honours, including with his weight in gold coins and given the title, Peerless Master Bibadal Khan. All right, so we've established it's a pretty impressive throne. So what actually happened to it? Okay, so as we said, the Peacock Throne is being built for Shah Jahan. And as we talked about in the app, he's very much up there with the other great Mughal emperor a few decades earlier, Emperor Akbar. Now, they were said to bookend what is considered the golden age of the Mughal dynasty. And Shah Jahan, he's very much on the up. He moves his capital from Agra, where Babur, my man, had set up his HQ. And he's now ruling from a newly constructed capital, Shah Jahanabad, which is essentially what's now Old Delhi, as opposed to the British New Delhi a couple of hundred years later. So... In his palace, in this new capital, Shah Jahan has placed his new peacock throne, and he's got steps leading up to it to make it look as though he's kind of of floating above ground and closer to heaven compared to his court. And it's probably worth pointing out here, Mikey, that the throne was considered so marvellous, so extraordinary, that only a very small handful of courtiers, aristocrats, and visiting dignitaries were allowed even to see it. But anyway, Everything's going swimmingly, but after Shah Jahan's death, with his son Aurangzeb in power things begin to turn, and they get even worse under his son, Bahadur Shah, who reigns from 1707 to 1712. Right, so now we're in the 18th century. Right, and unfortunately, this is very much the beginning of the end, a sort of inexorable decline, because now you've got the great mughal maratha wars, which, let's just say, do not go well for the Mughals. The Maratha Empire, you see, that's centred on the Deccan plains of central India, and these Marathans, they inflict so many defeats on the Mughals in so many different points. Eventually, the whole Mughal empire splinters and chunks, you know, like Bengal. They start to break off as semi independence Now, obviously, you've also got the British East India Company sticking their ore in two by this stage. But the key for our story today and the key for the Peacock Throne is actually the Persians. Because, you see, remember how my man Babur, Mikey, I said he'd originally charged into India from Afghanistan, and had early on in life been far more connected with the Persian and Central Asian traditions than anything on the subcontinent. Yeah. Well, so, when the Persians saw how well one of their own was doing down in India, they started to have a sniff around themselves and see if they couldn't just get a piece of the action too. Now, if you remember, Mikey, when my man Babur was first establishing his Mughal empire In India, back in the early 16th century, Persia was under the control of the great Safavid Empire. But unfortunately for them, their fortunes were soon on the wane too. So much so that in the end, one of their great generals, a guy by the name of Nadir Shah, he realises that if he's going to keep the Persian Empire together, he needs to take full control of the situation for himself. So he appoints himself Shah and actually makes an incredibly good fist of it, especially on the battlefield where he reigns supreme against old foes like the Ottomans or newly expanding forces like the
0: Russians. Yes, of course, because we're now in the 18th century and Russia's expanding.
1: That's right. We're in the 18th century and Nadir Shah, he's battling against all these different enemies, including also the nomadic leaders still ruling the steppes of Central Asia. Anyway, as I said, this Nadir Shah, he's taken on all comers and won. In fact, many people call him the Persian Napoleon. And so now it's only logical that his attention turns to India, where the Mughals had been doing so well. So he looks at the Mughals, he thinks, I can do that. In he goes, and sure enough, he is the military genius after all, sure enough, he defeats the Mughals at the Battle of Karnal in 1739. And he's able to smash his way through, right through to Delhi. But the thing is, Mikey, this Nadir Shah, being a warrior and a general at heart, rather than a statesman, he's more interested in the victories and the spoils than he is in the politics. So when he and his forces, they enter Delhi, they sack the city, they massacre tens of thousands of the inhabitants, and then they actually run off back to Persia, carrying the peacock throne with them as the ultimate war trophy. (laughs) Oh, and by the way, they also take the Koh-i-Noor diamond with them for good measure. But it isn't all good news, I'm afraid, Mikey, because you might not be surprised to hear that Nadir Shah's star, while it does burn bright, it's there for a good time, not a long time. And he's actually assassinated by his own officers on the 19th of June in 1747. And the peacock throne, it seemingly disappears. Now, it's probably most likely that it was dismantled in the ensuing chaos so that all the valuable stones could be extracted But sadly, nobody really knows. Look, there is one substantiated rumour that claimed the throne was sent as a tribute to the Ottoman sultan, although this could have just been an inferior throne produced in Persia and given as a gift. We're also told that the Persian emperor Fath Ali Shah commissioned a sun throne to be constructed in the early 19th century and that this sun throne had a platform in the same shape of the Peacock Throne, with some even claiming that parts of the original Peacock Throne were used in its construction. In fact, the Sun Throne for some time in the history books erroneously was referred to as the Peacock Throne. But again, Mikey, I'm afraid we have no real evidence. There's also a Sikh legend that maintains that a rectangular stone slab measuring six feet by four feet by nine inches was uprooted and taken after the capture of the Red Fort by the Sikhs to Amritsar in 1783. Ours war booty. That's right, Mikey, but again, it's hard to say. All that we do know for certain is that a replacement throne that closely resembled the original was constructed for the Mughal emperors after the Persian invasion. But this throne too has been lost, probably during or after the Indian Rebellion of 1857 and the subsequent looting and partial destruction of the Red Fort by the British. So hang on, mate, is there nothing left? Well, in 1908, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York it obtained what was purported to be a marble leg from the pedestal of the original throne and maybe another leg which has turned up at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, maybe that's authentic too. But I'm afraid, Mikey, the reality is the Peacock Throne is just another of those great wonders of history, a bit like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, that kind of thing. A treasure, it seems, that will always remain just tantalisingly out of reach. So we're on to episode three and all those great historical real estate deals. There's a whole host of howlers there, Mikey, but there is one that you've been asked to go into a bit more detail on a few of the old car enthusiasts I think out there wanted to know a bit more about Mr.
0: Cadillac Mr. Cadillac or Antoine Le Dit de Lamotte Cadillac Ah. went down in history for a long time as a hero but more recently we, we know him as a howler right okay let me start. When sneaky old Antoine got married in Quebec on june the twenty fifth, sixteen eighty-seven, he described himself as Antoine de la Mothe Squire, aged about twenty-six years, son of Jean de la Motte, Senior de Cadillac ah. Cadillac Launay et Monte. And it's his fancy French aristocratic title where the carboys get their idea for the name from. Right. Except He actually didn't come from nobility. Ah. He was born in 1658, Look, and he was the son of a local lawyer who'd turned judge. Mm. His military service was sketchy, to say the least. In two separate later letters, he gives two very different and conflicting details about his military exploits. Mm. At the age of 25, he heads off to the New World. See, his father, as I said, was a magistrate, but he had lost a rather expensive lawsuit. And with the death of that other sneak, Cardinal Mazarin, his father's patron, Antoine decided that his future lay outside of France. Here's the thing. The fact there is no record of him in any ship's manifest gives further credence to the theory that he snuck out of France under an assumed name. Mm. So he sets about exploring and trading, heading as far south as the Carolinas, eventually settling in Quebec, where it seems he established a trading concern with businessman and privateer, i.e. smuggler and pirate, yeah. Dennis Guyon. It's Dennis's niece that he marries and makes that proclamation. And as soon as he makes his wedding proclamation, people start questioning his supposed nobility. He would later write... I did not create this identity out of nowhere. It seems he took the whole Cadillac thing from a former friend, Sylvester de Espares, the Lord of Cadillac. Yes, because that's right. Cadillac is actually an area in southwest France, isn't it? It would seem that Antoine's father knew Sylvester, and then as a lad, Antoine and the Lord's son may have studied together. Look, think of it, mate, like a 17th century version of Six Degrees of Separation. (laughs) He's making it up as he goes along. A year after his marriage, he is now in what was pretty much Bar Harbour in Maine. It's a fishing town, but it's pretty slim pickings. He does a bit more exploring, but he always seems to be hard up for cash. It's during this time that rumours start to spread about him having an evil mind. And I'm using quotation marks there. People describe him as having an evil mind. And there is increased speculation amongst the colonists on just why he had to flee France. Mm. However he does return to France and he presents himself at court where he turns on the charm. He even suggests that his knowledge of the east coast of that part of America could be useful and he soon becomes central to a ridiculous ridiculous French plan to take New York by force. Mm. I hadn't come across that one before. In fact, he spends the next few years working on charts for the supposed attack, uh, with a bit of trading and alcohol running on the side. Mm -hmm. And in 1693, he's back in France to present these charts and a report. And despite the fact that his plans are eventually shelled, he gets paid quite handsomely for his efforts. Look, it's just part of his overall arc of what I would describe as failing upwards. (laughs) In 1695, he's installed as the commander of all trading stations in the Canadian upper countries and commands Fort de Borde or Michilimackinac. Ah, where we get Michigan from. Yes, indeed, but this place, it controls all the fur trading between the Missouri, Mississippi, the Great Lakes and the Ohio Valley. And this is where he comes into conflict with the local Jesuit missionaries who accuse him of supplying alcohol to the indigenous people, contrary to royal decree. Mm. And he gets promoted again. In 1701, he founded Fort Pontchartin in an area of the Straits, in French, La Datoie, Detroit. Right. Now, he attempts to establish his own monopoly in the fur trade and becomes a shareholder in something called Company of the Colony. Mm. Strange enough, two years later in 1703, the fort burns to the (laughs) ground, destroying all financial records, Mm. which is pretty handy because in 1704... Cadillac is called back to Quebec to face charges of trafficking in alcohol and furs. He's briefly imprisoned, but once again his name is cleared in 1705. And then in 1707, he's charged with multiple accounts of abuse of authority. In 1708, he is formally indicted, and in 1710, he gets thrown in the slammer and they throw away the key. No, actually, the king appoints him as governor of La Louisiana. Well, that sounds pretty impressive. No, but he actually spits the dummy. He doesn't want to go to Louisiana, so he goes back to Paris to complain. But while he's in Paris, he meets another Antoine, a Toulouse-born financier, Antoine Crozet. Mm -hmm. And with Crozet, he sets up a plan. So he's back in America in 1713 in Louisiana with Crozet's backing. And in 1715, Cadillac and his son Joseph take some time to prospect in Upper Louisiana, where they claim to have discovered a copper mine. It'll come as no surprise to you, Paulie. There is no copper there, never has been, never will be. But they (laughs) did, however, establish a lead mine in what is now present day Missouri which the French exploited with slave labour. Mm. In fact, the first African-American slaves in Missouri were brought over by Cadillac to work that mine. But his shenanigans are too much. By this stage, Crozat has had enough of him. He withdraws Cadillac's authority in the company that established. Also, we know by this stage, Cadillac has written a scathing report about Louisiana to the king. Yeah, you know, We talked about it in the episode, saying mm. it wasn't worth straw. On top of that, he's accused of under-the-table commercial ties with Spain and of actively encouraging French colonists to leave Louisiana. He's recalled back to France in 1717 and he's thrown into the Bastille along with his son Joseph and he's charged with having spoken against the government of the state and the colonies. And now, surely he's finally done for. No, mate, after five months he's released... (laughs) And he's presented with the Order of St. Louis (laughs) to recognise his almost three decades of loyal service. Wow. He's eventually made governor and mayor of Castel Saracen, where he dies a wealthy man in 1730 at the age of 73. Now that is what I call a howler. (laughs) Okay, mate, before we go, I've got one last little tasty morsel to leave you with. Mm-hmm. It's about early French colonialism in the Americas. It's in Quebec. Yep. Okay, it's to do with the 17th century and the first ever bishop of Quebec, a guy called Francois de Laval. Mm-hmm. See, back then, holy days were far more prevalent than they are today. I mean, sure, you know, even when I was a kid, you know, I was a Catholic, fish on a Friday, but back then, a holy day could be almost every other day. Right. Now, the people of Quebec they developed something of a taste for beaver. (laughs) The animals were plentiful, they were easy to hunt, and actually, mate, apparently they barbecued up a treat. Mm. People were loath to give up their beloved beaver every time the church declared a holy day. (laughs) Well, here's where the good bishop comes to the rescue. He mounted an argument in a letter to the Pope that due to the beaver's mostly aquatic habits, there were compelling reasons that the mammal could be classified as a fish. (laughs) The church agreed, and a special dispensation was granted for the good folk of Quebec to continue their beaver barbecuing ways. Which sort of shows just how willing the church was to to bend the rules to maintain its toehold in the New World. Mm. In fact, this fish definition was expanded to include capybaras, muskrats, iguanas and alligators. Basically, it's all good as long as it swims.
1: All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram,
0: whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is TheRestIsHist, the and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment. On whichever platform you happen to use, it's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming.
1: We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs>